Uh, we are in the middle of John chapter 21. In fact, this is the next to last Sunday. We're going to be in the book of John. And last week we saw how John answered the question, how will Jesus reveal himself to those who don't see him? The disciples had the benefit of seeing and witnessing Jesus, as did that first generation of Christians. What about everyone who comes after? I mean, how do people living thousands of years after Jesus become, as Jesus says, the blessed who have believed in him but not seen him? How does that work? And the answer, as we saw last week through the image that, that Jesus put forth there with the big catch, is through the simple means of word and sacrament. It's why, for example, in the book of Acts, you see the people of God devoted to the preaching and teaching of the apostles and the breaking of bread together, which was shorthand for the Lord's Supper. So much so, as we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Luke says, says it as typical, as regular practice, that when the church gathered on Sunday, which, sorry, Seventh-day Adventists, it's been the practice of Christians from that first Resurrection Sunday to gather for worship on the first day of the week, well, the church there in Acts 20, verse 7, they were gathered together on a Sunday around word, and Paul preached a long time, but also sacrament. And these simple gifts given by Jesus are both necessary, you have to have it, but they're also sufficient in the sense that you don't need anything else for revealing Jesus to generation after generation and growing us in him. That you know Jesus, you know Jesus, I know Jesus, is because he has really and truly spoken to us and brought us to himself through these simple means. Well, this week we go a little bit further down that path and look at a scene uh, that is both about Peter's restoration to Jesus. Remember, he's denied Jesus three times, but also speaks, I think, to our life together with Christ even now. So again, our passage, John 21, I'm going to pick it up with verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's uh, go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from your son to us, your people. Of course, it was first delivered to Peter and the other six disciples sitting with him at that crucial moment at breakfast, no less. 
But we pray now as we are on the verge of taking the Lord's Supper and we are listening to your word, that again, you would be present with us through your spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear, just as you have promised throughout the generations to your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we read in verse 15 that the seven disciples, that's Peter plus the six, had finished breakfast with the resurrected Jesus, right? It almost reads like you read in his early ministry, but this is the resurrected Jesus. Jesus then turned to Peter and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So let's talk through the setting. Let's, let's get the picture of, of what's going on. So Jesus asked this question in front of the other disciples. This was not a, a private, hey, Peter, can I talk to you for just a second? No, he asked this question in front of uh, all the other disciples, or at least six of the disciples, and it's, it's squarely aimed at Peter's denials of Jesus. And this group is, is sitting around a charcoal fire. We read about that uh, last week, just as Peter had warmed himself by a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus. So in a certain sense, this is a recreation on the part of Jesus. So on multiple occasions previous to this, this moment, previous to Jesus' death, Peter had claimed not only that, that though other people, namely the disciples, including the ones sitting here, though they would desert Jesus, he would never desert Jesus. No, he would rather die than deny Jesus. Now, he was clearly boasting, and we can look back and see that. He was clearly boasting, and it's of the same type of boasting that, that you sometimes hear among young men who tell you just what they would do if they were in a fight, despite never having been in a fight. And it's you know reality versus what we imagine we would do when reality shows up, those are often two very different things. And when real commitment is demanded of us, like it was for the disciples at Jesus's arrest, what we truly love, what we are, are truly committed to is then revealed. That's why despite Peter's obvious leadership qualities, and he was really the leader among the disciples, John is actually the model disciple. Did Peter love Jesus? Yes, he did. Did he love him when he denied him? Yes, I think he did, but clearly he was not wholehearted and he certainly did not love Jesus more than the other disciples. I mean, after all, John, the one described as the beloved disciple is the one that Jesus loved, never denied Jesus or abandoned him. So when Peter fled, John followed him to the cross. Now, Peter's answer, despite all that, I think indicates humble growth. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Peter does not say, yes, I, I, I love you more than these. No, he, he's not making that claim anymore. He, that, that prideful boast is gone. Instead, he appeals to Jesus's own knowledge of him. You know Lord. And eventually he'll say, you know all things. You know that I love you. So Peter doesn't need to put on airs or 
really justify himself or make grandiose claims. It's enough to be known by Jesus and to love him in return, and he appeals to Jesus' own knowledge instead of his own action, instead of his own strength. Now, the second and third questions Jesus asked omit the uh, opening phrase, more than these, which was addressing really one particular aspect of Peter's boastful claims. But still, all three questions aim at the heart of the issue. Do you love me? Now, Jesus's questions are not about emotion. He's not asking what Peter feels about Jesus. Feelings ebb and flow. And within a short period of time, you can go from hot to cold and back again with someone you love. I think that that sort of uh, emotional-based love explains, for example, the difference between Peter's public boasting, which I have no doubt he meant in the moment, and his public denials, which I think he also felt in the moment. As we mentioned last week, love is not about maximum feelings. Praise God. Love is not about maximal feelings. It's about maximum commitment. It's the commitment, for example, that anchors or steers or puts a check on our emotions. Otherwise, every single marriage is in danger of falling apart virtually every day because of the whims of changing emotions. So do you, Peter, seek Jesus and his kingdom first? Have you built your house on the rock that is Jesus? Where is your loyalty? Where is your commitment? So why did Jesus ask this question three times? Was he trying to make Peter feel guilty? Was he trying to rub his nose in his betrayal? Was was Jesus maybe unsure of Peter's answers? Well, no, I I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus was in fact restoring Peter to himself and giving him the opportunity to repent, which by the way, is grace. If God did not care about people, he would not give us the opportunity to turn back. He would say, one strike and you're out, and that's it, you're done. But no, he gives Peter multiple opportunities to repent here, and he's, he's addressing head on Peter's three denials, denials that Jesus told Peter he would make in order to restore him to his mission. Now, keep in mind that Jesus has already sought Peter out before he says any of this. He's already sought Peter out. Jesus called to Peter and invited him to table fellowship with him, something that he's, in fact, doing in this very service with us today. And Peter has already responded really wholeheartedly. That's what we saw last week when he dove right in uh, to the sea and, and was coming after Jesus. So Jesus then tells Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk whatever way you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then John adds the explanation. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, to modern readers, what Jesus describes sounds like a person growing old and in their infirmity being forced to depend on other people like in a nursing home. 
No, that's not what's in view at all. What Jesus is describing is actually shorthand for crucifixion. Just like how Jesus was stripped and beaten and led off to his death, basically in chains, so too will Peter take up his cross and follow Jesus. Now keep in mind that John most likely wrote his gospel much later than the other three gospels and what had happened to Peter by the time of his writing was well known. Jesus then ends by saying, follow me, follow me. This is something he said to Peter in the beginning. He's saying it to him again and that's restoration. Now I've, I've obviously left out Jesus telling Peter to feed my sheep and we're gonna come back to that at the end. But I think to, to the key to understanding this moment between Jesus and Peter and his disciples goes all the way back to Matthew 16, which happens about midway through his ministry. Now, in Matthew 16, having arrived in Caesarea Philippi after some key battles with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus is taking a moment aside and he asked the disciples who the crowd say he is. So he's been preaching and teaching and ministering you know, for some time and he's wanting to know what's the response. You know, he's not in the thick of the crowds listening to them. His disciples are. And so he wants to know, what's the feedback? What are people saying? And the disciples report that some say he is John the Baptist, so, you know, recently back from the dead. Others say Elijah or Jeremiah, you know, one of the great prophets. But then Jesus puts it directly to them and he says, who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Peter answering for the disciples, again, as was typical for him, he's, he's the leader, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus in response gets pretty excited. He's, he's pretty happy about that. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And by the way, Simon Bar-Jonah is the same way Jesus addresses Peter in our passage. Bar-Jonah is just son of John, Bar-Jonah, son of John. And he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And this is where Peter gets his nickname. Peter is his nickname, and it means rock. And on this rock, Jesus says, that is on, not so much Peter, but on this confession Peter made, on this word about Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus continues then after that by promising what's known as the keys of the kingdom to his disciples, which is a reference to being given leadership and responsibility in his church. And clearly the apostles had the keys in a, a unique way. I mean, their accounts about Jesus, their words are the authoritative accounts. So for example, I've been given authority in Christ's church, but I don't preach my word. I preach their word. So there's clearly a difference. But still, the keys of the kingdom, which is the role of shepherding and discipline, is a key component of every single one of Christ's churches. It's why the reformers like Luther and Calvin, and they disagreed on a lot, but they both rightly taught, based on texts just like Matthew 16 through 18, that the marks of a true church are the preaching of the word the right administration of the sacraments, and they have in mind correcting the abuses of the Catholic Church at that time, but also discipline. 
discipline. Now, as an aside, discipline is not a dirty word in the Bible. It may be to Americans, but it is not uh, to God. As Hebrew says, God, like any good father, disciplines his children and does not leave them in their sin or let them continue in their sinful desires. So, so contrary to the prevailing cultural assumptions, if God did not discipline his children, he wouldn't be good, let alone he wouldn't love them. Well, soon after that moment in Matthew 16, Jesus began to teach his disciples that his future lay in Jerusalem, where he would be rejected by Jewish leadership. He would be crucified, but not to worry, he'd be raised on the third day. Now, despite his brilliant, theological, heartfelt confession that came straight from God the Father, Peter rejected this. He did not think it was right or good for Jesus to endure the shame and agony of crucifixion. And in response, Jesus called him, not the rock, not Peter, but Satan, the tempter. And he said, you are a hindrance to me. You are trying to tempt me into disobedience, into a path away from the salvation of the world. So Jesus then tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a lot more we could say about that, but it's enough to ask the question, so what's his point? First, you know, being his disciple begins with the confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is all over John's gospel as well. And it's why John climaxes his gospel with Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Now, do you have to understand that, that statement to its fullest steps? I don't think so because I don't think I understand it to its fullest steps. But you do have to believe it in some regard in which you see him as Lord and King and God over all things. But that confession is not merely cognitive. It's not merely like confessing Jesus is Lord. It's like confessing the moon exists. No, if we make that confession, then Jesus says, and this is the second thing, our lives will take on the same shape as his. That is, we will be conformed to him and to his word and to his ways, and we will follow him. Now, that's not a unique claim to the New Testament, by the way. For example, this is all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Just go start reading it. To be God's people is to be a people shaped to him, to his word, and who follow him wherever he leads. And that leading, as, as David says, very well may be through the valley of the shadow of death, or in the case of Matthew 16 and John 21, to a literal cross. And even if our modern American lives do not tend to end on crosses, even so, as Jesus clearly says, his people following the pattern of his own life will deny themselves and follow him. Peter, though, you know, he had the right confession. And by the way, this is telling, even the demons can get that confession right. Instead of denying himself, He denied Jesus, and instead of following Jesus, he had fled from him. So in John 21, Jesus brings Peter and the disciples all the way back from those critical moments in Caesarea Philippi, and he asked a version of the same question again. 
who do you say that I am? Because the response to that question is always going to be a response of the heart. Peter, if you say I am the Christ, that's good. But are you committed to me? Are you loyal to me? Do you love me? Because you too will literally take up your cross and be led to your death. Will you follow me knowing this will be your end because I just told you it would be? And it's a question that by extension, it's really put to all of us. Will our confession of Jesus merely be a thing we say like so many people even in our own town? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, it's great. Or will it look like the sort of life where we deny ourselves, willingly pursuing a life of repentance? Not a life of perfection, but a life of repentance, which is a daily turning to God, a daily recognizing your sin. And in turn, follow him, even if it means he will lead us somewhere we don't want to go. And in American culture, Denying yourself, denying your desires, denying what you want when you want it is rare, even among Christians. Well, Peter's calling to come and die is given shape by what Jesus says in response to to Peter's insistence that he really does love Jesus. Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. So Jesus gives slight variations from response to response. You know, feed my lambs, which kind of indicates little children, like he's already called them in the previous passage. Little children, have you caught any fish? It kind of gets at that. Uh, Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It's kind of getting at similar things, guiding and feeding. But they all basically get the same calling and job. The disciples, of course, won't be the only ones with this calling, So, for example, feeding the sheep is a major concern for Paul when it comes to the churches he planted and the need for elders and deacons and good order in the churches so that all of that will happen. So, for example, to be a Presbyterian, I mean, it's it's in our name after all. If you didn't know, Presbyterian comes from the word presbyter, which is Greek for elder. That's how seriously we take this, right? It means elder-led church government. It's to be concerned with these same issues because we think church leadership and church polity, that is how we we live together as a new city, a new polis, that's where polity comes from, as instituted by Christ for his people is fundamental to not only to rightly proclaiming the gospel, but to how we live it out together. You know, every year when I go to General Assembly, for example, the debate is the same. It's always how can we live together in unity and proclaim the gospel together. All the, the, the debates over new laws or changing laws to our constitution, that's all what they're geared towards, every last one. So as the thinking goes, and I think you see this certainly with Jesus here, you see it with Paul too. As church leadership goes, so goes the church. As church leadership goes, so goes the church. So in this church, as, as I've said to this session on multiple occasions, you know, even though I actually think we're in a good place right now, it's, it's kind of hard to tell in the summer, you know, just the dog days of summer when people are in and out, but when we're all together, I think this church is actually in a pretty good place, especially when I hear 
you know, conversations with other pastors in other places and just how divided some congregations are, just how at each other's throat they are over all different kinds of things or how lightly people take things. I actually think this church is in a, a pretty good spot right now. In fact, Michael Alsop, who preached here, what, two or three weeks ago, he commented that. He says, it seems like your church is, is in, a, in a nice spot. You ought to praise God for that. I do. I really, really do. And I think the leadership that we have right now is good. I like all these men. I can't always have said that about sessions I've, I've been a part of, but I like all these men and I think they're doing good work. But even so, as the 49-year-old pastor, I'm between the current leadership and the future leadership. And one of my biggest concerns outside of teaching and preaching faithfully every week is the future leadership of this church and how those men will lead, both in the decisions they will make with this church, but how they live their lives. So this is Paul's concern too. You know, how, how do they shepherd their families? How do they treat their coworkers or employees? What is their reputation in the community? Are they given over to drunkenness and immorality? Are they growing in grace and humility? I mean, that's what Paul lays down in 1 Timothy. And they are significant, significant issues for every single church. And even in my time over here, I've grown more and more in my conviction of my own life that, man, I've got to own 1 Timothy. Through God's grace, of course, but that's got to be on me. It begins at home and it it works its way out. So one of the key ways then that Jesus is revealed to the generations that come after him will be through his under shepherds. Not just these disciples, but future church leadership over millennia. And it's bound up with what Jesus means with feed my sheep. So to feed the sheep is to do as the great shepherd has already demonstrated throughout his ministry. It's to teach and to guide and discipline and protect God's people. So what Jesus demonstrated throughout his ministry, and we see this in the section just right before this uh, with the big catch, the disciples, they're supposed to do that too. That is, they are to teach and preach Jesus' word and minister the Lord's Supper, baptizing people in the triune God's name. And as you can see in Matthew 16 through 18, they are to guard and discipline the flock. So this means the fundamental way Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to the world in this time is not through crazy over-the-top miracles. It's through the simple means of his people and again, this is nothing new. Just start reading with Genesis 1, and you're going to see this. And, and that happens through his people being devoted to the word, faithfully taught, in community together with the right administration of the sacraments that Jesus instituted, which build on and supersede the sacraments of the Old Testament. So for good reason, you know, in the Old Testament, good to, God took things like circumcision in the feast days really seriously. And it wasn't because he was a legalist. I think some people read the Old Testament thinking that God just liked to create hoops for people to jump through and like, ah, do it again. No, not at all. Those were visible words he gave to his people that taught them about who he is and what he had done for them. I mean, they all went back to the Exodus in one way or another. So much more so what Christ has taught and has given. But the responsibilities of church leadership 
They extend beyond teaching and administering the sacraments. It includes, for example, protecting and disciplining God's flock. And it's not my flock. This is not my church. It's not the session's church. It's Jesus' church, right? It's his flock. So, for example, you know, church leadership, starting with me, has the responsibility to protect the church by teaching and warning against and correcting false doctrine or errant views. And we can all think of churches where leadership stopped doing it because it was socially hard or culturally uncomfortable to do so. You know, I think I do that formally every single Sunday from the pulpit, and I do it informally throughout the week as the need arises. And sometimes it's as simple as people asking a question like, does this text mean this? And I say, no, that's, that's not what that means, or, or, or what have you. It's called, you know, speaking the truth in love. And if church leadership cannot or will not, and some will not, speak the truth in love, if we will not do that, even at great cost to us, then we should not be in leadership and we need to step down. But there is also the responsibility to physically, at times, protect if necessary. So the PCA just released and affirmed a monumental study years in the making on domestic abuse and sexual assault. So when abuse of any kind in our churches happens, including in our building or among our members outside of the building, the leadership of the church has the calling to stand in the gap. Now, Jesus has not given the church the power of the sword, right? That's, that's when you read Paul in Romans. We do not have the power of the sword, so we aren't police officers, and we are not equipped to do criminal investigations. Elders do not show up with guns to your house, right? That, no, absolutely not. But we do have the obligation to address issues. It's called the ministry of declaration, to address issues and help in whatever way we can, which may include nonviolent confrontations or, in particular, standing with victims. Otherwise, we aren't shepherds. And in turn, we are allowing wolves into the household of God. Now, discipline is different. Discipline is different. Discipline is not about smacking people around. It's not about calling out sin and then telling people, I guess I'm just gonna have to fix you now. You know, as a pastor and a sinful human, I cannot fix anybody. I stand in need of grace and mercy and discipline just like everybody else. And the, the reality is none of us are objective when it comes to self-evaluation. No one is. We think we are, we're not. None of us can see ourselves clearly. So my role as a pastor is often to act like a referee. That is an outside perspective that can help people who are maybe in conflict or people who are just struggling to see themselves more clearly. Not perfectly, because I can't, but more clearly. Even as I'm a man who is in need of a referee, I need people to point out my sin too. I can't see my sin clearly either. No, discipline is about gently and firmly pointing out sin and encouraging someone to turn from it. In fact, if you were to read through the, our Book of Church Orders section on discipline, one of the chief reasons a church should, should do discipline is to regain the sinner. 
because we want them back. What do you see Jesus doing with Peter in our passage? And when I say gently, I don't mean nicely. I don't mean nicely. I don't think nice is a Christian characteristic. In American culture, to be nice is to never call out sin or oppose someone's views or disagree with someone's lifestyle, whatever. You just smile and nod and say, that's nice, right? Christians are called to be kind, but not arrogant. Gentle, but not hostile. And perhaps the kindest thing we can in America do right now is to gently yet firmly tell the truth, pushing back gently against cultural desire for unbridled self-expression. I mean, some of the nicest people I've known, some of the nicest people I've known, both Christian and non-Christian, quickly turn hostile when you speak the truth in love to them. We don't want to be nice. We want to look like the fruit of the Spirit. So just consider how, in our passage, Jesus disciplined Peter's sin of denial. He didn't say, Peter, how could you do this? Or what about all those big claims you made? All these guys heard it. What about that? Or I saw you deny me. You realized I was there, right? I saw you deny. Do you know how badly that hurt me? Do you know what an absolute train wreck you are? You have no business being my disciple, let alone a leader. How are you going to fix this, man? How are you going to make amends? How are you going to redeem the situation? No. No. Jesus addressed Peter's denial by asking him, do you love me? And he gave him the opportunity to admit his sin and turn back to him. Because you see, Jesus is not like us. Jesus loves repentance. Jesus wasn't nice to Peter. I mean, it's not nice to call out sin in a group setting. Can you imagine how awkward that moment was? Post, you know, there's resurrected Jesus. So Peter, you love me more than these guys? That's more than just awkward, right? But he was gentle in a hard moment. He didn't shame Peter, but he did allow Peter to be uncomfortable. See, all growth comes from being uncomfortable, especially in the confrontation with sin. So Jesus is not looking to destroy you. He's not looking to rub your face in your sin. No, he's looking to restore you and to bring you closer to him. That's what makes, I think, the church so beautiful, why being in the people of God can be such a wonderful thing. Uncomfortable, sometimes really awkward, but it's really good, and it's what God has given, among other things, for us and our growth. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll move on to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of repentance We thank you for how you do not grow tired pursuing your people. We thank you for how gentle and firm you are with us and how you will never let us go. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, our great healer. Amen.